What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Perhaps you are a uh, Baptist, perhaps you're a Presbyterian, uh, perhaps you are a Methodist, uh, or whatever, and you've got a question or two about the Catholic faith that you just can't get answered, we are here for you. Here's our phone number, 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in Wales, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. Or if you prefer, send us an email. I'd love to get that. The address is ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Ace McKay handling social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, you can do that. Uh, look for the comments box. That's where you want to put your question. Ace will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Love to get that question of yours answered on today's show, no matter how you get it to us. Again, the phone number 833 833- 288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you, sir? You know, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Haven't had a lunch update lately. What is in the, what's in the menu for today? Well, a- actually, I, um, I, had, uh, I had Mexican food today. Really? Yeah, uh, the, uh, the Office of Hispanic Ministry at our diocese had uh, offered lunch for me and some of my colleagues. And oh, so nice. I was... I was Picking around through the various fajita <laughs> off- offerings for the items that could fit un- within my the parameters of my diet. You found enough to <laughs> satisfy you. Right? Well, you know the thing about uh, <laughs> the thing about Mexican food is you, you've always got rice and beans going for you. Oh yeah, yeah, good stuff. All right, well we're going to lead off here with this email from uh, Kevin, who says, "Dr. Anders, as a lifelong Catholic, I still have trouble completely wrapping my head around the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist." Could you refer me to some resources that will help improve my faith in the matter besides St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa? Yeah, so I personally am really fond of uh, Abbot Vonier's book, The Key to the Doctrine of the Eucharist. Okay. That's a, that's a favorite of mine. Okay. But, um, but you know, what you got against St. Thomas's Summa? That's what I want to know. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, th- Thomas lays it out there. I mean, everybody that you read is going to refer basically back to his the way he's articulated it. And for my purposes, the important thing about understanding the doctrine of the Eucharist, we'll never, we'll never understand the mystery. Anytime someone presents a Catholic dogma to you and says, I finally got a way to understand it, you know, oh, he's a heretic. <laughs> like once, once they've got it all wrapped up inside their logic box, you, you know they've, they've given up on some essential element of the doctrine, right? Well, kind of um, dials out faith, doesn't it? Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, there's a... Uh, uh, Matthias Sheban has a wonderful book called the, the Mysteries of Christianity, and it's all about the, the particular dogmas of the faith that, uh, that can't be fully grasped rationally, mm. right? But uh, so as long as you don't try to do that, you're fine. But with respect to the Eucharist, remember that the teaching of the Church is that we have the substance of Christ's body and blood. Mm-hmm. We don't have his physical body and blood. 
Mm. Now, lots of times people will use the word physical quite casually. Jesus is physically with us in the Eucharist. And I know what they mean. I know what yeah, they mean, and yeah. it's piously said, but that's not the way the church describes it. It doesn't use the word physical. It uses the word substantial. And there's a difference because, see, the physical presence is what I have with Tom Price right in front of me right now. Tom Price is physically present to me. That's not the mode of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. And so if you try to squeeze the idea of physical presence into the consecrated host, well, then, you, you know, your mind melts. What you do instead is you write, well, what does it mean to have something substantially present, not physically present, but substantially present? It means you abstract away all of the sensible properties uh-huh. of the substance. Extension in space, you know, quantity, color, smell, you name it. Abstract all that away. And what you're left with is substance. And you go, well, what's that? Like, you know, I, I don't have any experience of an of a substance stripped of all its properties. Well, that's the mystery. Yes. That's the mystery. Um, but, but, the, but the empirical problem, like when you actually confront the Blessed Sacrament and you go, looks like bread, smells like bread, tastes like bread, feels like bread, that's actually what the doctrine says you should expect because it doesn't predicate of the Eucharist the physical, but rather the substantial presence of Jesus the substance of his body and blood, minus all of those sensible properties. Kevin, thanks so much uh, for your email. Uh, Blue Bear, watching us on YouTube, says, I know that we will be praising and adoring God in heaven, but will we have jobs to do? Yeah, right. I appreciate the question. So the, 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 the essence of the reward of heaven is the vision of God. Uh-huh. And we're not talking here about what you can see with your eyes. Not that kind of vision. It's a... It's, a, it's an intuitive knowledge of God in his essence. And, you know, an intuitive knowledge is, is one that you have immediately and introspectively, kind of like the way that I am immediately conscious of my own consciousness. I am aware that I am aware. Okay. Right? Yeah, and yeah. That's just kind of like, I, I can't turn on my brain in the morning and not know that. <laughs> right? That's an immediately, intuitively obvious thing to me. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to know God with that kind of immediacy. And see, now we only know God as through a glass darkly. Then we will know, as it were, face to face, except one of us is not going to have a face. If you uh, follow me, it's just a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so that's, the, that, that's, the, that's the, the warp and woof of the life of heaven. Now, in the resurrection, we're going to have that with bodies. With bodies. And so your embodied experience of God will also be one where you enjoy the beatific vision. So what then will you do with your body? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love him, says St. Paul. So I don't have a clue what we'll do with our bodies in glory, but we're going to have them, so we'll be up to something. All right. Appreciate that, and uh, thanks for checking in on uh, YouTube there, Blue Bear. Good to hear from you today. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at EWTN.com. In a moment, we're going to be talking with uh, Oren, a first-time caller from Idaho, also Dwayne in St. Louis, Arcadius in Washington. Looks like one line open right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN Radio on this uh, beautiful Wednesday afternoon. First uh, first Wednesday of Lent, unless you count Ash Wednesday. Our phone number here, 833-288-EWTN. That's uh, one line open, 833-288-3986. We'll get to the phones in just a second here. Hey, you should check out the new line of Icon Magnets, now available at EWTN's Religious Catalog. These beautiful, high-quality icons come with a certificate of authenticity and are crafted to the highest standards following the traditions and requirements requirements of true iconography. Each beautifully handcrafted item handmade using canvas on natural wood using indelible colors. With 36 magnet icons from which to choose, collect all your favorites. Great way to for for the kids to learn about biblical events and figures. Each magnetic icon is about two inches wide by two and a half inches high, so they will not overwhelm your refrigerator. They're available right now at EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Oren, a first-time caller in Idaho, listening on the EWTN app. A blessed Lent to you, Oren. What's on your mind today, sir? Thank you, Tom. Hello, Doctor. I'm Hi. calling about um, predestination. That's sure. my question. Yep. I'm a convert at the Easter Vigil. It'll be two years Catholic. Congratulations. And during my conversion, thank you. During my conversion, I was good friends with somebody who is a five-point Calvinist. Now, the questions about predestination are pretty strong. And now that I'm converted, my best friend, he is uh, he's ultra Thomist, and I'm not really. I don't really understand the alternate positions besides Thomism, you know, on the Protestant side, Calvinism and Arminianism. So where can we find a place in the church between Thomism and something else? That's my question. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So the, the doctrine of predestination is taught by the Catholic Church is that God has a plan to bring to heaven those who will get to heaven, an end that they cannot reach on their own steam, that they can only reach with the help of God's grace— and he has foreknowledge about how we will or will fail to cooperate with that plan. And some of the elements of that plan are that we cannot merit the initial gift of grace, and we cannot merit perseverance in grace. So the beginning and the end of our faith is from God's initiative, not from ours. We can, however, cooperate with grace and, and merit an increase in grace. We can pray, efficaciously pray, for the gift of perseverance— and grace can be resisted. And God gives sufficient grace to everyone that they might be saved. So there are some significant differences in there, before we even get to the Thomist business, uh, in the Catholic doctrine and the Calvinist doctrine. Because the Calvinist holds, first of all, that God does not give sufficient grace to everyone. In fact, in five-point Calvinism, Calvinism, they deny even that Christ died for everyone. Namely, Christ died only for the elect, if you're a five-point Calvinist. Um, Calvinists teach that grace cannot be resisted, that grace is irresistible. Um, they, they teach that uh, we don't cooperate freely with grace, and therefore, if you have grace, you will necessarily persevere, whereas in the Catholic Church, you can have grace and lose it. So these are all significant points of difference. Now, in trying to figure out the relationship between our free cooperation, God's initiative, and these sorts of things. Catholic philosophers and theologians have uh, have 
offered some theories, and the theories are just that. They're theories in theology, and they are not obligatory for Catholics to hold. But they're sort of two strong contenders in the Catholic tradition, and I'm going to throw out another point of view as well. And the Thomas view is something like this, that God gives efficacious grace, that is, grace that actually gets the job done, to the elect, but sufficient grace to everyone. So not everyone gets efficacious grace, but everyone gets grace of some kind, or at least has the offer of grace. And that we can't discern why God grants efficacious grace to one and not to another. And so while Thomism differs from Calvinism in all the respects that I already mentioned, insofar as it pertains to the inscrutability of the divine will, there is an analogy between Thomism and Calvinism. Now, there are some Catholics that look at the Thomist approach to predestination and say, hmm, looks too much like Calvinism to me. Now, it's not Calvinism, but they go, hmm, this is uncomfortably close to Calvinism, seems to diminish the role of our free cooperation. So here's another theory that gets floated in Catholic circles, this one called Molinism. The Molinist view is that we know that the initial gift of grace does not come from our merit— you know, God doesn't look around and go, hmm, like, who's, who's been a good boy today? I'll give him extra grace. It doesn't work that way, okay? But, say the Molinists, God may not give grace because we've somehow merited it, but in his foreknowledge, he can anticipate the use that we will make of grace if received. Okay. And so this would be God's knowledge of counterfactuals. His knowledge of what would be under certain circumstances, of, you know, it's, it's called Molinism after Molina, but you could also call it a form of modalism, which is, you know, the philosophy of possibility. And, uh, in fact, when you watch science fiction films about possible worlds and alternate universes, the Catholics, as usual, beat everybody to the punch on that one. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is the way Molinism works. Mm. It's, it's hypothesizing possible worlds. And in this one, God gives efficacious grace not to those who deserve it, because there is no such thing, but rather to those whom he foreknows will make good use of it with their free cooperation. And so the difference between the Molinist and the Thomist is the Thomist says the God's purposes are inscrutable, and the Molinist says, no, they're intelligible. Now, the Thomist response to Molinism is, you guys have just snuck Pelagius back in the back door, <laughs> right? Because you're still sort of lodging the reason for the divine action in something that is human, and that would seem to grant our initiative too much, too great a role. And so historically, the Thomists thought that the Molinists were semi-Pelagians, and the Molinists thought the Thomists were either Calvinists or they were, uh, you know, Manichaeans. So each one had a tendency to point the finger at the other and go, you're a heretic, no, you're a heretic, meh. Sit on your side of the car and <laughs> give me my G.I. Joe back, you know. <laughs> um, and so they actually took this to the Pope. And the, you know, the Dominicans were historically the inquisitors. Uh -huh. So the way the Dominicans saw the thing was, we are the inquisitors and the Jesuits are accused of heresy. And the Jesuits weren't content to be characterized that way. And so they turned the finger around and pointed it back at the Thomists and said, no, you guys are the heretics. Wow. And, uh, and the Pope actually took about three popes to go through all the evidence. And the last pope who heard, this was the Congregatio de Auxilius, was the name of the controversy. Here's the controversy, and he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You guys shut up, go home, back to your schools, teach theology, evangelize. I forbid you to call each other heretics, and I'll let you know when I've made up my mind. 
And that was 500 years ago, and the Pope still hasn't made up his mind. So the, the conclusion is both of these are allowable opinions in Catholic theology. Okay. Now, I want to give you another perspective that is complementary to those. It's not contradictory to those. <clears throat> and it is to point your attention to the way election and predestination actually function in the narrative of Holy Writ. And I think you won't find a clearer example than the calling of Abraham. So there's, there's no doubt that, you know, Abraham is just trucking around herding camels someplace in Chaldea. And uh, God, for his own purposes, says, Abraham, get up, leave your homeland, go to the place that I'm going to call you, and I'm going to make your name great. And your, your, answer, your progeny will be a blessing to all the nations. Abraham did nothing to merit that. Mm-hmm. God had his own inscrutable purposes for calling Abraham, but he called Abraham for a reason, and it wasn't just the salvation of Abraham. He called Abraham for the sake of the world. Mm. And in the same way, he calls Abraham's progeny, the Israelites, again, not for their sake alone, but for the sake of the world, that through them would come the Messiah. Uh, preeminently, he predestines Christ. Jesus is absolutely predestined. I mean, this particular humanity, born of that particular virgin on that particular day, would be the means of redeeming the world, and in him all people will have the possibility of salvation. There is definitely an act of predestination, but again, it's not for the salvation of Jesus, but for the sake of the world. And in the same way, the church is predestined, but is it for the sake of the church alone, or is it not that the church might be the light of the nations, the salt of the world, through whom all men might be saved? And so when you look at the way election and calling work in the biblical narrative, there is both a particular calling, but always with an eye to a universal redemption. Okay. Oren, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate that. A great way to kick off today's edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Dwayne in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Dwayne. A uh, blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Thank you, gentlemen. I was just calling to ask if Dr. Anders could make a distinction between uh, the, our bibli- a biblical worldview and a Catholic worldview. Yep. And I thought this would be kind of very relevant, considering uh, a lot of the, the different issues that I guess we've had to make decisions on as Catholics, and uh, obviously with elections uh, coming, looming. Yep. Uh, yep. It, it seems like in many cases that, you know, many, of us, many people that maybe with Christians are Catholics on abortion, like pro-life, and things like that, they speak more in terms of a biblical worldview. Yep. And I know there's some good things about it, but I think you've also spoken at other times where there can be some pitfalls yep, as well. Yep, so. yep, 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 I'm all about this question. Thank you very much. So I'm going to make some people mad here in what I say. Personal opinion, I do not think, I will say this again emphatically, I personally do not believe that there is such a thing as a biblical worldview. I think that is a gross category mistake. I think that is a relic of Protestant fundamentalism. And the language about biblical worldview emerges within a particular current of Protestant evangelical North North American apologetics, um, the genesis of which is, you know, arguably with Carl Henry um, and uh, and E.J. Carnell— and to a certain extent with um, uh, Cornelius Van Til and Francis Schaeffer. 
So, and although they, they have different views, uh, as well as uh, Gordon Clark, right? Each of those guys has a slightly different account, but, but what they all have in common, and these are all evangelical theologians, uh-huh. is the idea that the Bible is uh, primarily to be understood as propositional revelation, that is, you know, actual propositions, discursive statements about the nature of reality and ethics that form a coherent, cohesive picture about the nature of reality and our moral relationship to it, and, uh, and that the, the proper apologetic is to contrast that with, uh, with alternative views of the world, you know, pagan or postmodernist or whatever. And uh, I don't think that's what the Bible does. And I think that those men's construction of what they think is the, quote, biblical worldview um, is, uh, is tendentious and culture-bound, idiosyncratic, and they don't agree with one another. So I don't think the Bible presents itself as a coherent worldview. And, and in fact, I think what you find are many different worldviews uh, attached to different portions of the Bible that were written at different times by different people that had different perspectives. And, I mean, just to give you one example, uh, the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Job give very different accounts of the problem of evil which is different yet again from the account that you're going to get in the book of Daniel and then again from the Gospels, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's not a problem for me as a Catholic, because I don't think the purpose of Holy Spirit, of, excuse me, of Holy Scripture, is to give a single, consistent, coherent, philosophical account of the nature of reality. I, I don't think that's the purpose of the Bible, and so I think it's a category mistake to talk in those terms, which is why Protestants can all appeal to the Bible and come up with such radically different views about the way reality works and how we should relate to it. I mean, witness, witness, tragically and conspicuously, the, the, uh, the North and the South in the Civil War. Sure. And Abraham Lincoln himself remarked how both sides were praying uh, emphatically and piously for the victory of right over wrong and light over darkness, and each side was sure that theirs was on the right side, right? So I don't think there's such a thing as a Protest- as a biblical worldview, right? There are biblical worldviews espoused by different Protestants in their Protestant worldviews. Now, I do think we're on firmer ground when we talk about a Catholic worldview, and uh, and you know some of the elements. I'm not going to be able to get through the whole thing, but you know some of the elements of a Catholic worldview would be obviously this one we would share with many Protestants would be the distinction between creator and creature, to be sure. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, but Catholics have a very particular understanding of the nature of the Creator, um, his relationship to the transcendentals, that is, truth, goodness, and beauty, um, the way that cashes out in the natural law and the moral law, mm-hmm. the way that we know those things, so a kind of philosophical and moral realism as opposed to, say, Protestant divine command ethics, um, and, uh, and, then, and then what we are to do about it, right? And so Catholic ethics, for example, is eudaimonistic, that is to say that we are um, under the burden to seek our own happiness, right? that the end of the moral life is the life of happiness, and so you're morally obli- obligated to do the thing that tends to human flourishing, uh, which is going to be bringing your life and your reason into harmony with your nature as created by the God who is the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so there's a coherent picture of our of our rational nature in relationship to a rational God and an intelligible universe and a moral eudaimonism uh, and, a, and a realistic epistemology, right? That's all packed into the Catholic view of reality.
Okay. And all of that is basically denied by most Protestants, by the way. Fascinating. Dwayne, thanks so much uh, for your call from St. Louis. Good to hear from you today on this uh, Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Lines are absolutely sold out. We're always glad about that. In a moment, we'll be talking with Elizabeth in Albany, Victor in Washington State, also Lene in Auburn, Nebraska, Teresa in Eugene, Oregon, also Sasha standing by. Lots coming up on this uh, Wednesday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. As we mentioned earlier, we are now in Lent, uh, in the first week of Lent. EWTN Radio and Television is your Lent companion. We have tried to bring you uh, over the years a lot of great Lenten-related programming. One thing that we have aired for many, many years is uh, a daily feature called Lent Today with Father Benedict Groeschel. Timeless messages airing throughout each day from uh, Ash Wednesday all the way through Easter Sunday. And then this weekend, got some great things for you when you generally on Sunday you have a little more time to sit down and listen to programs like Lenten Reflections uh, from, from uh, the uh, Our Lady of Walsingham, England, recorded there at the Basilica. Fantastic series. Uh, those are fresh for you. Also, Lent, A Season of Grace with our friend Father Cedric Pesenia, an excellent program airing on Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, and uh, another dear friend, uh, Father Richard Holong bringing you a Lenten journey along with the Missionaries of the Poor. That'll air Sunday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern, all that exclusively on EWTN. All right, let's go to Victor now in uh, the state of Washington, listening on KHSS. Hello, Victor. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, hello, guys. Um, Dr. David Andrews, it was a pleasure to meet you when you were in Pasco a couple weeks ago. Oh, yes. Uh, it was a very, very nice talk. Thank, Thank you. you. And uh, I was discussing with a coworker yesterday, and I mentioned to him that I was Catholic. And he's like, well, you know what the Catholics did to Willem Tisdale, right? And then he made it sound like the Catholic Church persecuted him and burned him at the stake because he was giving out Bibles to the common folk. And then he also mentioned that uh, the Catholic Church was persecuting anybody that had their own Bible because they didn't want people having their own Bible. And I was wondering if uh, you can enlighten me on that, uh, on yeah, if there's any truth to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so that is, a, as usual, that is a, that is a gross uh, misinterpretation of the facts, which I will elaborate. So, uh, first of all, when it comes to the persecution of heretics, uh, the Church and the civil governments, really more specifically, of Europe and the late Middle Ages and the early modern period, um, absolutely and unambiguously persecuted heresy as a civil crime— and while that definitely uh, just grates us the wrong way today, and rightly so, I mean, I don't think any of us would like to live in a regime where, where heretics were persecuted, I want to make a few observations about just the fact of persecuting heretics. First of all, persecuting heretics has not gone away, but the definition of orthodoxy and heresy changes with culture. So today in the United States, um, there are state regimes that definitely persecute heretics, and they define, say, traditional Catholics as heretics. And the progressive orthodoxy and the, the sort of the sexual identity 
orthodoxy views people that fall outside of that as heretics, and they, they definitely seek to sanction them and to deprive them of civil rights and in some case of parental rights and so forth. And so that that kind of dynamic of there being a, a powerful orthodoxy allied to, to political authority that uh, that punishes dissent um, is a, that's perennial in human history. Mm-hmm. And we see it again in the United States today. All right. Think about the the Red Scare in the United States. Yes. And, and the way, you know, there was a political orthodoxy and a, and a heresy and, and uh, and and how, say, for example, Eisenhower might have felt if he had woken up and found a copy of the Communist Manifesto on his bedside table uh, in the White House, indicating that somebody you know close to the president's person was subversive and maybe allied with the Soviets and was putting that kind of propaganda in his bedroom. That's an analogy for how Francis the First, Francois Premier, felt when he woke up one morning at his castle at Amboise. And he found a poster of placards attacking the mass and, by implication, the kingship and, and royalty, which were allied to the sacramental view of, of reality, right? Uh-huh. So, so it, when you put it in that context, say the persecution of, of heretics in, in early modernity was absolutely understood in political terms because they were uh, the— uh, the, the the heretical movements of the day definitely had profound political undertones. Right? Um, in uh, you know, to get a couple of examples in the, in the city of Geneva, something that I've studied quite extensively, the the temporal lord of Geneva in the 16th century mm-hmm. was the was the bishop of Geneva, who held the city as a fief. He was a he was a feudal lord, uh-huh. and he was typically drawn from the the Duchy of Savoy, and so you know typically a scion of the Duchy of Savoy who wouldn't generally live in Geneva held the city as a fief and was also its its spiritual lord, and so there was no way to address religious questions in Geneva without simultaneously making them subversively political and revolutionary. Which is why uh, political revolution and support, say, by the the Swiss city of Bern militarily, was uh, was went hand in hand with the Reformation of doctrine and the introduction of Zwinglianism. So, so the political and the religious were so intermixed that that dissenting religious ideas could not help but be profoundly subversively political at the mm. same time. And today, you can still be executed in the United States for treason. Yes. Right? And you, you, we don't burn at the stake anymore, but you can definitely get the de- death penalty for advocating ideas and passing information and things of that sort that you could be construed in something analogous to heresy. So mm-hmm. none of us like that. None of us want to live in a regime where our opinions or our doctrines are persecuted. And I'm not justifying any regime that does that, but I want you to—you can't single out Catholic regimes of early modernity as if they were guilty of some unique barbarity that we modern people are somehow freed from. It doesn't work that way socially, okay? And in the 16th century, the Protestants were putting Catholics to death with all the vigor and enthusiasm and bonfires that Catholics were heaping upon Protestants. So the, the lot, say, for example, of a Jesuit priest in Elizabethan England— was uh, if if caught if caught 
The people who harbored you would have all of their property confiscated and their civil rights taken away. And you yourself would um, be hung by the neck until almost dead. And then you would be disemboweled and castrated Ugh. and observe your entrails and genitalia burned in front of your face. And then you would, you know, die of your horrifically painful sure, wound. So that's sure. what Protestants did, say, for example, to St. Edmund Campion. Right? Mm, yeah. So not justifying Catholic atrocities, but again, you can't just single out the Catholic Church and say, well, the Catholics were uniquely bad. No, Protestants are doing that as well. Servetus, of course, burned at the stake in Calvin's Geneva. Calvin wanted to put um, Bolsic to death, but was prevented for political reasons. So it's just that's just the world that you lived in. Why was Bible translation itself seen as a politically subversive thing to do? Because in the 14th century, um, Wycliffeites in England, these are followers of John Wycliffe, mm -hmm. held the position that, that political power could be delegitimized de if politicians were not in the state of grace. And so, so the idea was, if you know, if your if your king or your lord was not in the state of grace, you didn't have to obey him politically. Well, that would right there. That is just nothing but anarchy, because it's almost a job requirement that you not be in the state of grace to be in certain <laughs> political positions. You know, mm, particularly yeah. in today's world, right? Oh yeah, this is a very politically subversive thing to say. And Lollardy. It was a populist movement, you know, it was a demagogic kind of movement, obviously, and because, you know, the self-appointed judges of, of temporal lords' moral character was the people. And so it got tied into the idea of vernacular Bible translation. And so the idea that the lay people should have and interpret the Bible for themselves was wrapped up in an ideology that was politically subversive and, and anarchical by, by definition. I see. Right? And so there was a brief period, and it really was brief, it was just a you know, century or two in the mm -hmm. 2,000 years of the Catholic Church, when there was a, a real critical eye placed on lay access to the Bible. However, that's not why Tyndale died. Tyndale was actually per persecuted for his pursuit of vernacular translations of the Bible in England by the Protestant monarch Henry VIII. So the Protestants persecuted him in England for wanting to do that. He fled to Holland. He was, in fact, executed not by the church, but by the civil government in Holland, but not for the crime of translating the Bible, which wasn't illegal, but rather for Lutheranism, which was. Uh. All right. And then, as a final remark, the early Reformation definitely owed something to, that, to those Lollard roots and that, that populism, uh -huh. right, that you know, the common man should have the Bible. And, in fact, when you read John Calvin's preface to the French New Testament that he composed in 1534, there is a note of that populism. Calvin said that if God could choose prophets from the ranks of shepherds and apostles from fishermen, why could he not now deign to choose like disciples, right? So, you know, he was like, that's definitely a populist note. Yeah, yeah. Then Calvin proceeded to spend the rest of his career walking back that populism. <laughs> And uh, I wrote a doctoral dissertation on this topic. My dis the title of my dissertation was Prophets from the Ranks of Shepherds, John Calvin and the Challenge of Popular Religion from 1536 to 1555. And it was all about Calvin trying to walk back 
the populism of the early Reformation that he came to consider to be anarchical mm. and destabilizing and subversive in all of the things that the Catholic Church had criticized about populist movements. Calvin himself ended up criticizing, and uh, and 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 he enforced an authoritarianism that would ultimately be the progenitor of Puritanism uh-huh. in North America, which you know from your American history yeah. was profoundly persecuting and authoritarian and and fraught with with fractions and accusations of heresy and all yeah. of the things that make medieval Catholicism so distasteful to modern man were also true of New England Puritanism, except there were just a lot more sects persecuting one another yeah. because they appealed to the incoherent principle of sola scriptura, right? So, so it, you just can't point your finger at the Catholic Church and go bad Catholic Church and you know enlightened Protestants and enlightened modernity. It yeah. doesn't doesn't work that way. It's more like point your finger at the human race and go bad people doing bad things to other people. Sure, be, be, to your to your earlier statement, Tyndale was not persecuted by the Catholics. Well, he was. He certainly was. But after he'd run away from the Protestants, got it. All right. There you go. Uh, Victor, thank you so much uh, for your call today. It's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Lene is a first-time caller in Auburn, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. A blessed Lent to you, Lene. What's on your mind today? Thank you. Um, I I listened to the program yesterday, and I remember something about, uh, I don't know if you're talking about evolution exactly, but what I don't understand is um, in... Uh, Luke 3, 23 to 38, it has Jesus's um, generation. Yes. You know, his line from Adam to Jesus. Okay, so then in, all right, so then we have Genesis, where it's in Genesis 5, has the generations of Adam. So how can we not, so you were talking about these different early mans that, men, you know, the types of early Men yes. that you were talking about in different yes. areas and yes. all that. Well, yes. that can't be true if it says here. I mean, if it's not Adam to Jesus, then it's got the generations right here in Luke. Then, yes. if this isn't true, then the whole thing it falls apart. And so that is precisely your point is very apt, and that is why Pius the Twelfth, in the encyclical Humani Generis, points to the doctrine of Jesus as the second Adam as being the the key, the linchpin on which the whole understanding of redemption falls, and therefore he cautions Catholic theologians to tread very carefully when they engage with the scientific data that would seem to suggest a polygenistic origin to the human race, right? And so all of the genetic and anthropological data suggests polygenism, the idea that humans didn't have a, a single pair ancestor, but, you know, various groups and so forth. That kind mm-hmm. of, that's the way human evolution works. And and and, and he says, well, I, I understand that. I understand that that's what the science suggests. But before you go accepting that wholesale, you had better find a way to fit that with the uniqueness of Christ as the second Adam. And so be very, very careful before you step away from monogenesis in your understanding of human origins. The Pope has the perspective that you have. He issued that caution. And so I think I said yesterday on the show, like, I'm not smart enough to square that circle, right? I know where the parameters of Catholic dogma lie. I also know what the challenge of the anthropological and evolutionary data is. 
different Catholic theologians approach that conundrum in different ways. I think I gave you one example yesterday on the show was the theologian Kenneth Kemp, who has written an article on monogenism and human, human origins, or the, the, um, uh, the website Thomistic Evolution is another one, right? They address this issue. You know, when, it, when, when theologians theorize, they're trying to figure out how to bring the faith and reason into harmony, understanding that you, you can't just throw out scientific data because it conflicts with your understanding of sacred scripture. The Catholic Church has never done that. That would mm. be that would be obscurantism. That would be fundamentalism, not not faith and reason. Um, but neither can you throw out the Bible. You you can't throw out either side of the antinomy. Now, what St. Thomas said was, when you're faced with a contradiction, draw a distinction. In this instance, the Church hasn't told us what that distinction is. We have two sets of data. We have the natural science data. Yeah. We have the biblical and the dogmatic data. They're both true. We leave it to the philosophers to square that circle, to, to find the relevant distinctions where we can hold both sides of the antinomy with a good conscience. And I, I, I don't think I've specified on the show how you have to do that. In fact, I've said there are different theologians that approach that. It is a real difficulty. Uh -huh. They approach it with different ways. But as Catholics, we're, we can't be obscurantists. We can't just say, well, you know, scientific data is inconvenient for me, and therefore I will ignore it. We can't do that, right? But as a scientist, neither can I say, well, you know, biblical data is inconvenient for me, so I'll ignore that. You hold both these things in tension, and then you try to do really good philosophy to figure out how to fit them together. Lene, we hope that's helpful for you. Thanks so much for your call from Auburn. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Teresa is a first-time caller from Eugene, Oregon, listening online, EWTN.com. A blessed Lent to you, Teresa. What's on your mind today? Hi, um, I was born in a bi-ritual home. My dad was Byzantine Catholic and my mom was Roman Catholic. And I was baptized Byzantine Catholic, and, but I also attended Roman Catholic schools. And I know that we're allowed to receive communion twice a day. And I was wondering if it's okay if in the morning I go to a Roman Catholic Mass and receive communion, but in the evening in the Byzantine Church we have pre-sanctified liturgies during Lent, and if it's okay to receive communion there. Yeah, thanks. So... I know exactly zip about the code of canon law for Eastern churches. Mm. I know something, not much, about the code of canon law for the Latin rite, in which case it, it, it is lawful to receive communion twice in a day if you're uh -huh. a Latin rite Catholic. I, I don't know the code of canon law for Eastern Catholics. Now, we have people at the network who do, yes. right? And so I will ask them. I will okay. ask them. All right. right, and we've got some Eastern Rite folks here actually at work in our theology department. Yeah, who, if I'm lucky, might be listening to the show. I will ask them. There right, you, okay. but I don't know the answer to the question. Teresa, thanks for your call. Stay with us. Uh, let's go now to Elizabeth in Albany, New York. And Elizabeth is um, let me click here, uh, watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Hello, Elizabeth. What's on your mind today? Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. So, um, Dr. Enders, I am a uh, newly practicing Catholic. I came into the church, um, Easter Vigil 2023, and um, I am still I'm, I'm still trying to um, understand how to approach the Bible um, the Catholic way, so to speak. I'm aware of the book that you recommended, Bible Basics for Catholics, but one of the things, one of the the biblical hermeneutic that I um, heard as a Protestant um, quite often is that Scripture interprets Scripture, 
And I wanted to ask you, to what extent is that true, especially when it when it regards to gender roles? Okay. Um, and an example yeah. that I have. Oh. Yeah, I can speak um, to that. And, and I can speak to that. Thank you. So I am well aware of the Protestant hermeneutical principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. And I think it is utter balderdash. <laughs> wow. I think it is hogwash. Um, I do think that Scripture interprets Scripture, but not in the way in which Protestants mean when mm. they use that phrase. Okay. Okay? So the, the, the Protestant view is that Scripture is a kind of internally coherent system of propositional revelation that can all be made to fit together, you know, provided you have the right starting point. Mm -hmm. Once you have the right axioms, and, you know, those are going to be defined by Christ, basically, that using those axioms, you can you can find a way to fit every other seemingly square peg into all the round holes, right? I don't think the Bible functions that way, not when it comes to gender roles, not when it comes to anything. I think that is a gross category mistake. It profoundly misunderstands what the Bible is and how it functions. Now, um, that being said, there is a way that Scripture interprets Scripture, but it's the Catholic way. Um, Catholics don't think that the Bible is a kind of theology textbook or manual of moral theology. It's not a rule of faith that gives us everything we need to know about the Christian life, and therefore it's not necessary, in fact it's impossible, to construe it as a collection of propositions, discursive statements, mm -hmm. forming a kind of uh, coherent, internally consistent system. That's not the way Catholics view the Bible. Um, there is a salvation history, there is a story arc, if you will, from Old Testament to New, and it does culminate in Jesus, so like the Protestants would say, we'd agree with them here, Jesus is the key of the whole thing, but not in such a fashion that you can take the whole Bible propositionally and work it into a system. Rather, there are tensions in the Bible that at the literal level are not resolvable, because you'll find one book says one thing, one book says something totally different. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's, there's no harmonizing those into a coherent system. What the Catholic Church does with those tensions is it sees earlier statements in the Old Testament, for example, as allegories. They are, or, or they're, you know, they're, 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 they're condescensions to an earlier stage of human religious consciousness uh -huh. and development uh -huh. that, that themselves point beyond them, allegorically and spiritually, to a fulfillment in Jesus, and through allegories that cannot be found, they can't be discovered just through exegesis. And see, the Protestant thinks if you have your Greek and Hebrew down, you're all, that's all you need. But, but for the Catholic, St. Paul tells us explicitly that there is a reading of the Bible that you can only have if you have the mind of Christ, which is why in Catholic antiquity, Christian Middle Ages, there's a doctrine and a practice that you can't properly make use of the Bible before you've undergone a moral purification. Now, you will not find that teaching in Protestantism, like that the proper way to engage the Bible is to, have, is to purify yourself morally first so that you can have the enlightened consciousness that will enable you to find the spiritual sense. Like, that's hogwash to a Protestant, mm. especially to a fundamentalist. And so there is a layered view of the Bible. There is a there's a nuanced interpretation of the Bible where the light of Christ illumines your understanding of the Old Testament, but it's not, it's not using the kind of axiomatic approach that Protestants would take. 
Okay, so now let's apply that to the question of gender roles. You know, for a Protestant, uh, he sees in the New Testament, you know, says, well, you know, women have to have long hair and they have to cover their heads and they can't speak in churches and, you know, you know, you know Eve sinned and not Adam and, and all that. And so yeah. therefore chauvinism and male hierarchy and all the rest of it, right? As a Catholic, I, like, I am totally not obligated to read those texts that way. And it's perfectly legitimate for me to say that what, what in the spiritual reading of the text, as interpreted by sacred tradition in the magisterium, mm-hmm. the real point at issue in the incarnation and in the person of Jesus mm-hmm. is the dignity of the human species, right? Our elevation in grace. And, and of course, John Paul II's theology of the body is an extended reflection on male-female relationships in light of the mystery of Christ that in no way disadvantages uh, the female with respect to the male. And so I would, uh, for an authoritative magisterial answer to that question, I would point you to the apostolic letter Mulieris Dignitatum, Pope John Paul II's um, apostolic letter on the dignity of women, where, among other things, he's going to offer you an exegesis of Ephesians chapter 5, which is one of the classic texts that, that uh, male chauvinists use to put women down, and he's going to give you a radically different reading based on the principles of spiritual interpretation that are that are 2,000 years old in the Catholic Church, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, as Catholics, we, we keep in mind that the, the person, the, the mere human who stands at the top of the hierarchy of the human race is a woman. And that's, that's the ever-Virgin, blessed Virgin Mary. Yes, yes, right? indeed. Appreciate that. Elizabeth, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much for your call today. I really wanted to get to Chris in New Jersey watching on YouTube. Uh, Chris actually gave us a question back on Monday. Couldn't get to it then. Uh, couldn't get to it yesterday. By golly, doggone it. We couldn't get to it today. But we're going to try to get to it again tomorrow. And uh, Chris, don't give up on us. We won't give up on you. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. You can check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com, click on radio, and then look for the words Podcast Central. All those shows are in alphabetical order. We'll... um, you know, you can check out that podcast. Charles will have it up for you in the next uh, hour or so. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Hope that your Lent is blessed as well. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.